Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my pals, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. I hope you've had a marvellous Christmas and are looking forward to 2023. But before we leave behind 2022, let's reflect on what a year it's been in the mad world of Westminster politics. Although I think I might have said that every year since this podcast started. We've had Brexit, Covid and four Prime Ministers since we launched back in March 2017. It's been hard to keep up, hasn't it? But sticking to 2022, I'm joined today by my wonderful Telegraph colleagues Camilla Tomineyad and Gordon Rayner to look back over what we've been writing about all year and what it might mean for 2023. Happy New Year to both Happy of you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's go back to January this year. Now, don't forget, Camilla and Gordon, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. There was a hangover from the revelations in December 2021 about Partygate, and that carried on into the new year. We reported back in January that two parties were held in Downing Street the night before Prince Philip's funeral. And then this happened. Can I start by warmly welcoming the Honourable Member for Bury South to his new and to the Parliamentary Labour Party. Mr Speaker, like so many people up and down the country, he has concluded that the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves. That was, of course, Christian Wakeford crossing the floor, literally in the House of Commons, being formerly a Tory MP, then a Labour MP. Camilla Tomney, no one else followed him, did they? No one followed him, although, God, reflecting on it, that was a big <coughs> moment, wasn't it? You had Boris Johnson <coughs> flailing around in the aftermath of Partygate. And then to see one of his Red Wall MPs cross the floor to Labour was a massive boon for them. It didn't create the avalanche, though, although I suppose subsequently we might think that these Tory MPs who are now resigning early, two years out from a general election aren't exactly inspiring confidence in the party's supposed performance at the next time. Is is that right, Gordon? Is is Camilla right that um, we saw no more crossing the floor, but we have seen young Tory MPs like William Ragg, like Diana Davison, just give up and say, right, I've had enough of this, I'm off? Yeah, I mean... (sighs) Who remembers who he is now? I mean, it seems so long ago, and uh, it, uh, like you say, it didn't it didn't cause long term shockwaves. Maybe it was the sort of canary in the cage. Maybe we should all have realised that it was the beginning of something. Ironically, I, th- I think at the time, because he was in the middle of Partygate, it felt as though that was almost the moment of maximum danger for him because of the revelations that were coming. That's out. Boris Johnson. Yeah, and if we if we cast our minds back to then, there was a lot of talk at that point about Rishi Sunak being the, the, you know, the, the anointed one and uh, yes. that if Boris had to go, Rishi was... And, of course, Rishi had already sort of started, secretly started his own campaign. But then that didn't come to pass and it felt as though Boris had sort of survived it. But it took a few more months before the the, the avalanche really sort of gathered its full mass. And just and right, fast forward now to December 2022. Is it too late for people to cross the floor now? Is it is the moment gone, do you think, Camilla Tomini? I think so. I mean, there was that deadline, wasn't there, for kind of the selection process, and that's why we've heard from the likes of Matt Hancock, mm. not surprising, Sajid Javid, quite surprising, and others saying, look, I'm not going to do this. I stand at the next election. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to somebody who I'd regard to be a senior Tory source, very, very senior, 
saying that they thought perhaps people were jumping ship a little too early and wouldn't it be better to just wait and see what happens over the next six to 12 months because a week's a long time in well, politics. We even had a poll recently. I mean, I know it was one in, one in many saying that the Tories were only 11 points behind Labour. Yeah. I think that was overly generous, but a lot, a lot can happen. We'll come to the polls later. Of course, um, Partygate hadn't played out. By the end of that month, on January the 31st, the initial findings of a report by Sue Gray into these parties was published, but not all of it because of the ongoing investigations by the Met Police. So it basically carried it on, didn't it, Partygate, through spring? Yeah, of course, there was uh, lots of speculation about what was going to be in the full report once it was published. There was the talk about pictures. And, and then, of course, when we did eventually get the full report, there were some pictures, but not as many as we thought there were going to be. There were the tamest pictures you could have imagined, really, weren't they? And there was a distinct lack of pictures of um, people in Downing Street looking mm. drunk or, uh, you know, um, throwing each other in the air. Um, it was hardly a Bacchanalian orgy, was it? No, no, shame. Like, <laughs> looked um, like the worst party ever. But also Sue Gray became the kind of phrase, didn't she? It was like, we, we cannot comment until Sue Gray delivers her full report. At every turn, Boris Johnson kept on referencing Sue Gray as basically his own kind of human shield. The interesting thing about Partygate as a whole was that, as you as you mentioned earlier, it's, it started off with some stories back in December. I think the first stories were, were in the Daily Mirror. And I, I, at that point, I don't think anyone really realised what it was going to end up being. I think I certainly didn't. I, I read those stories and thought, well, that's interesting, but it happened a while ago. You know, it seems like ancient history. And uh, what we didn't realise at that point was the extent to which this had been going on. Mm. And then you also mentioned the fact that the, the Telegraph found out one of the parties has happened, well, two of them, in fact, has happened on the eve of, the, of Prince Philip's funeral. By officials, which, not by um, Boris Johnson and his family. Yeah, and that, I, I do think that sort of changed the mood a little bit. felt as though that was the point at which it became a real problem for them because I think a lot of people just found that quite disgusting and mm. it was very hard for them to, to get over that. Also, I think, wasn't Partygate, it wasn't necessarily about when and if Boris Johnson had a piece of cake in or was ambushed by cake or anything like that. Partygate spoke to a lack of seriousness about the administration. OK, on to February. Now, things took a turn for the worse. A much more serious uh, situation developed out in Ukraine. On the 1st of February, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, went to Kiev and met President Zelensky as Russian troops amassed on the border. Later that month, on the 24th, Russia invaded. Shortly after four o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine to offer the continued support of the UK. Because our worst fears have now come true and all our warnings have proved tragically accurate. President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. He's attacked a friendly country without any provocation and without any credible excuse. Gordon Rayner, that was definitely Boris Johnson's Churchill moment, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it's interesting when you when you think back. Uh, we were talking just now about how uh, it, it seemed as though early in January there was a head of steam building up against Boris Johnson. I think we have to be honest and, and say that when the war in Ukraine started, a lot of people were privately saying that that was something which was going to help keep Boris Johnson in his in in Downing Street because there was a feeling, um, or at least the accepted wisdom was, that you you can't get rid of a prime minister when there's a, a war going on. Um, he responded very well to that. It, it, it sort of um, his popularity um, increased because of that, and it, it seemed as though it was something which was going to sort of make all of those domestic problems sort of fade into the background. 
Camilla Tomlin, did it, it made Boris Johnson, did it, the war in Ukraine? Well, wasn't that one of the kind of big things he got right? And there was clearly warmth shown to him from not only President Zelensky, but the Ukrainian people. And I think actually at the time, Britain's response was robust when compared with some of our European neighbours and even the US. And mm. that was appreciated. So I think, you know, in a brief period in office, that was one of his finest hours. And the effect of that invasion is being felt today, isn't it, Gordon Rayner, with the cost of living crisis, the cost of energy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost hard to think back to a time before there was a war going on in Ukraine because it's it's dominated so much of this year. It's one of those things that almost seems as though mm. it's, um, it's it's been going on longer. And, than and it the, the threat to Kiev when uh, when Johnson was speaking, there was a column of tanks coming down towards Kiev at, at that very moment. looked looked very, and and other other Eastern European countries were said to be at risk. Yeah, it looked very bleak, didn't it, at that point? I think the idea that the the mighty Red Army could be stopped seemed uh, quite unlikely at that point. I don't think anyone really foresaw the Ukrainians yeah. being able to hold out that the, the way that they have done. And it really did look as though we were looking at a, a sort of annexation. Clearly, that was what Putin thought was going to happen. On to March then, and mid-March, the 16th of March, Nazneen Zaghari Ratcliffe, detained by Iran since 2016, is freed and allowed to return to the UK. That was a happy moment. And then at the end of the month, the Met Police announced 20 fixed penalty notices will be issued as part of the inquiry into number 10 parties about alleged breaching of COVID rules. But they wouldn't say who the notices were applied to. On to April now. Now, on April the 8th, a crisis hit Rishi Sunak, who had, had a very good, very good uh, period in office since he became Chancellor back at the beginning of the COVID crisis. Sunak's wife, Akshata Murthy, announced she will pay UK taxes on her overseas income following controversy over a non-DOM status. Now, that was seen at the time, wasn't it, to, to be a real problem for his chance to become Prime Minister. I mean, uh, I think it Kimmel. was. It, it did, at that point, kibosh his chances of becoming Prime Minister and continued to kibosh them even when Liz Truss was in office until Liz Truss wasn't in office and there didn't mm. seem to be any viable alternatives. It's the double <coughs> whammy of both the perception that he and his wife were kind of using a privileged tax status that is not afforded to others, and he's the head of the Treasury, so that doesn't seem fair. Got HMRC chasing after sole traders and small businesses. And then equally, just this general notion of him being too rich to be Prime Minister. Gordon Rayner, Camilla's right, isn't she? I mean, it did seem to be the end of his career at that point. And we should we should say that Akshata Murthy is still non-DOM now. She pays UK tax on her global earnings, but is a non-DOM. And that's why we keep hearing Keir Starmer mentioning it every other PMQs when they, when they meet each other. Yeah, and I'm sure we, we when we get to the next election, we'll hear an awful lot about this again. It's something which Labour won't let go, I'm sure. It is a very interesting concept, isn't it? Can you be too rich to be Prime Minister? It's a question that was raised at the time it's uh, you know it's a good one for people to talk about in the pub, isn't it? Mm. How rich is too rich to be prime minister? So while Rishi Sunak's uh, chances of being PM had appeared to have gone away, it was getting worse and worse for Boris Johnson. He and his wife Carrie Johnson and Rishi Sunak were issued with fixed penalty notices for breaches of lockdown rules at gatherings in Whitehall and Downing Street. This made Johnson the first sitting prime minister to be sanctioned for breaking the law. Camilla Tomney, that was a real moment at which Partygate became existential for Boris Johnson. Well, I think the idea of being investigated by the police and then possibly even fined takes it into new territory because then people, the opposition in the House of Commons can say, you know, basically you've been complicit in criminality. I mean, of course, there was a grotesque irony that he wouldn't have been found guilty of anything had he not have been so draconian in his own rules. Mm. I mean, not only breaking his own rules, but also being caught out by rules that many of the libertarians in his party thought were an idiotic idea mm. in the first place. 
Gordon Rayner, I mean, the, the damage there was done by the Met Police. Yeah, and I think there is there is an interesting point to, to, to make in the context of how this year has played out. I think when, obviously, Rishi Sunak was fined um, for attending that very dull party in the Cabinet Room on Boris's birthday, there was a feeling at the time that had he been a more ruthlessly ambitious politician, he would have quit there and then as Chancellor, put Boris under huge pressure and put himself in a very good position to then sort of launch a bit from the back benches. Obviously, you know, he got there in the end. But I, I think a lot of people felt when Liz Truss beat him to the to the punch that that, that was a, uh, a moment that had been a misstep by him, that he should have he should have gone and he should have shown a bit, a bit more nous. Mm. And that's been a theme all the way through his premiership and yep. his, the, the idea that he isn't, he isn't a sort of instinctive politician. Yeah. And then on April the 19th, Boris Johnson said this to the House of Commons. That on the 12th of April, I received a fixed penalty notice relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. I paid the fine immediately and I offered the British people a full apology. You heard the word resign shouted there at Johnson, didn't you, Camilla Tommy? Did it even feel then he was going to go? Not for the first time. This was actually an Achilles heel for Starmer because he started asking for him to resign far too early and then it got a bit stale and silly. I mean, looking back on it now, I suppose we now see Partygate to be less significant than it was because compared to Liz Truss tanking the economy, it doesn't seem like much of a crime by comparison, right? Gordon Rayner, do you agree with that? I mean, it, it did seem uh, at the time, I mean, his spin doctor said it's like a speeding fine. You know, it's not, a, it's not a criminal sanction in that sense. I think that if you look back on it now and you look back on his premiership and the reason that his premiership ended far sooner than he would have liked it to have done, I think the fine, Partygate, but in the fine in particular, they were part of a sort of cumulative effect of people falling out of love with him, weren't they? Um, he, in 2019, he was, the, you know, the person everybody wanted to go down the pub with and, you know, have a chat with. He was a cheeky chappy. And over the course of three years, he became somebody who people saw in a very different mm. way. They saw him as being someone who was rather dishonest, that they decided they didn't really like after all, and who didn't um, do the right thing uh, when it mattered. And it was one rule, one rule for us and one rule for them, wasn't it, Camilla? Yes, but I think Rishi escaped some of the criticism because he didn't have this history of apparent dishonesty. So yeah. it seemed to reinforce what yeah. all of Boris Johnson's critics were saying about him in a kind of, you know, such a stark way, a fine criminality and back things up but yeah in retrospect i don't know obviously there are many who regret the yes. way that <laughs> well we're going to we'll, come we'll just, on to that no doubt in our skim through this year we'll mention that on april the 30th former tory mp neil Parrish admitted to watching pornography twice in the house of commons and said he'd resign what was he searching for gordon rayner tractor porn tractors not oh porn. sorry but a pornographic <laughs> image came up. Well, it is tractor porn in a way because he was trying to <laughs> yes. look at really big, shiny tractors. Absolutely. On to May, difficult local elections. The Tories suffered a net loss of 485 seats, including London boroughs of Barnet, Wandsworth and Westminster, formerly considered Tory strongholds. Labour gained 108 seats. Lib Dems were up 240. Here's Johnson. Uh, it's, it's mid-term and it's certainly a, a mixed set of results. And... Uh, we've had a tough night in some parts of the of the country, but on the other hand, in other parts of the country, you're still seeing uh, conservatives going forward and uh, and making uh, quite remarkable gains uh, in places that haven't voted conservative uh, for a long time, or if ever. Camilla Tomley, it wasn't as bad as it might have been for the Tories, and that may have saved Johnson. 
And also what was bad is it wasn't as good for Labour as no. it should have been. Liberal Democrats, again, benefiting from general ennui with both of the main parties. But it could have been more catastrophic and wasn't, which in a way gave Boris Johnson, I think, a little bit of a stay of execution. Because at the time, lots of people were saying, right, we'll wait to the, yeah. let's wait to the locals. And if they're a disaster, he's out. That's right. There's always lying in the sand, isn't there, Gordon Ray? And another line in the sand is further on in politics. Yeah. One of, the, one of the fascinating things about local elections is the way that political parties always try and ramp up the idea that they're going to be terrible and they're going to work. And they always try and put out this massively worst case scenario, knowing that it won't be quite mm. as bad as that. So that when it's not quite as bad as that, they can somehow spin it as a victory that even though it was you, terrible, it mm. wasn't quite as terrible as it might have been. Did, did you think that's an example maybe of the, of the disconnect that we saw through the year, Camilla Tomini, about MPs really falling out with him, but the public being less so? I think so. And we're still seeing that now because mm. you can still encounter quite a lot of people that wish, wish Boris was back in power. Yeah. Um, but it was ever thus. You know, yeah. Westminster is a bubble and sometimes there is a disconnect with between what politicians are posturing about and what the public's actually concerned with. Also in May, on May the 17th, uh, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, in charge of the Brexit talks in Northern Ireland, announced plans to unilaterally abandon parts of Northern Ireland protocol. We're still not resolved there yet, are we, Gordon Rayner? We sure aren't, uh, and I'm not quite sure when we will be. It's, uh, well, um, the people who um, who were against Brexit always accused Boris Johnson of not really knowing what he was going to do about Northern Ireland. Using one of his sort of famous phrases, he, he talked about how they would sandpaper off the rough edges once uh, once they got into yes. the, the details of it, and he doesn't seem to have found the right grade of sandpaper, does he, nor has anybody else. Right, into June. Now it's getting tasty. The threshold of 15% of the parliamentary party seeking a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister has been passed. Therefore, a vote of confidence will take place uh, within the rules of the 1922 committee. That vote will take place this evening in the House of Commons between 6 and 8 o'clock. And we will announce the result shortly thereafter. On the 6th of June, Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Tory MPs, announced a vote of confidence in Boris Johnson's leadership of the party. The party MPs decided they did have confidence in Johnson's leadership. However, more than 40% voted against him, with a result of 211 in favour and 148 against. Now that was when it was over, right, Camilla? Well, it wasn't convincing enough of a victory. And considering the fact that he had won over two-thirds of Tory MPs when he was elected as a Tory leader, the writing was on the wall. Again, was there a disconnect between people in the parliamentary party and the country? Yes, I think so. But the Tory party has got this extraordinary habit of eating itself. I mean, Gordon Rayner, did you think that was the end of Boris Johnson when those numbers came out? I mean, it had been building, hadn't it, the numbers of letters going in, letters going out, Andrew Bridgen, you know, and others... Um, it was a kind of a, a, a common narrative, wasn't it, through, through yeah. May and June? I, I think it, it felt at that point as though it should have been the end and that it would be the end were it not were it anybody else. But what we also knew uh, was that Boris Johnson is an incredible survivor. Mm. Uh, we, uh, we know that he has defied the odds in the past. And I think that certainly the Boris supporters and Boris himself had were still hoping that something might happen that would sort of change the dial that there might be something i don't know perhaps something in ukraine would would start to go positively um that uh there would be some unexpected event um and and you know it wasn't yeah. impossible but uh, it did feel as though 
yeah, he was he was halfway down. On borrowed time, that's yeah. right. And voters started to make their own choice about this government, didn't they, Camilla Tomney? <laughs> on June 23rd, the by-elections took place in Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton. Labour won in Wakefield, while the Lib Dems won in Tiverton and Honiton, overturning a substantial Tory majority won by Neil Parish previously. That was a big moment, wasn't it? It was the double whammy moment, wasn't it, of losing a sort of traditional Tory shire and a red wall seat. And that seemed to suggest that... Boris Johnson had sort of served his purpose. You know, if he had become a hindrance rather than a help to Tory aspirations of electoral victory, if he wasn't the politician that could reach the parts that others couldn't, then what was the point of him? Yeah, that contractual relationship had been broken, Gordon. Yeah, I think, as Camilla said, that the, the feedback that you were hearing from MPs who had gone out to campaign was people saying to them... I will never vote for you as long as Boris Johnson is leader, which was the exact opposite of what they'd been because saying Because he previously. broke... It went back to him breaking rules that they had followed and yeah. he, he hadn't followed himself. Yeah, exactly. They, they were they were disgusted by the way that he'd behaved predominantly over COVID. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of that month, something happened which at the time felt isolated but became a big issue the following month. On June the 30th, Tamworth MP Chris Pincher resigned as the government's deputy chief whip, saying he had embarrassed himself and other people and drank far too much following incident at a party the previous evening. At the time when Chris Pencher went, Camilla Tomini didn't feel it was mm. going to bring down Boris Johnson. No, not necessarily. I think because, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but maybe we we're inured to the idea yeah. of pessimist scandals um, in that part of... Um, public life so it was like oh another one you know at the time it felt like there was kind of a gathering storm and it was just one aspect of the whole very sorry looking picture and Gordon the following day July the 1st Pincher had his had the whip withdrawn from him and sat now sat as as an independent MP in the House of Commons then it really was accelerating towards the end of Johnson wasn't it because uh, on the 5th of July it was it emerged that he had been told Johnson had been told about a complaint against Pincher when he's in the foreign office uh, Johnson had said that was a big mistake to, to appoint him back in February 2022. And then the big guns started walking out. First, Shadid Javid resigning as Health Secretary, Secretary, saying he could no longer carry on in good conscience. And then Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, also resigned, saying that people expected the government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. Yeah, and it felt as though that was going to be the end. But as I said earlier, you know, with Boris Johnson, it's never over until it's over. And there were still messages coming out of Downing Street that he was going to carry on. He was still replacing those people by doing these sort of rolling reshuffles. Every time somebody resigned, he had to find someone else to plug the gap. And it did eventually get to a point where he was running out of people he could appoint as ministers because everyone had either already just resigned or uh, had just been given a job. And there was very... That's right. On on July 7th, Education Secretary Michelle Donnellan resigned after 36 hours in post. Incredible. It was it was chaotic, wasn't it? It was, and there were talk of delegations going in and people were giving him a tap on the shoulder. And then it then starts to appear a bit kind of last day, days of Rome-ish um, to, 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 to hit on a theme that Boris Johnson might appreciate. You know, he's then seemingly needing to be dragged from office, kicking and screaming, which is rather unedifying. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. Johnson then resigned, and that was it, uh, Gordon Rayner, triggering a leadership contest, which just seemed to get 
more and more interesting, didn't it? Certainly got uh, more and more bitter. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was an awful lot of blue-on-blue uh, blue action, wasn't there? And uh, it's always the way, isn't it, when they have uh, these internal quarrels that, that they they start off by saying, let's not um, let's not drag the party down by destroying each other, and then they go on and do exactly that. Uh, What's fascinating, isn't it, how Jeremy Hunt stood... Yes, and got nowhere. Got nowhere. And now is Chancellor. And now is Chancellor. Richard Sunak did stand and then turned to be the most popular of amongst the MPs, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, we had the kind of unexpected rise of Penny Mordaunt. That's right. Who some would have said, I was saying recently to me, how they wish she had replaced, would have, would have beaten Sunak, would have been a better PM Well, she would have been Liz more Truss. interesting at the dispatch box, that's for sure. Raymond Chishty stood, didn't he, Gordon Rayner? Yes, <laughs> Raymond. My goodness, we're getting we're getting into the realms of trivia questions You've got now. One though. vote for himself, yes. his own vote. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the end of July, we had a final two. We had Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak, and then we had these interminable dozen in-person hustings through August. Interminable. I hosted one of those, Chris. Can I just? Were say? they hard work? Um, it was quite difficult. They were very formulaic, and I think a lot of the stock lines were churned out again and again and again. So the poor journalists that were having to cover them all, and indeed people at CCHQ, must have really been quite bored by the end of the whole process. What struck me when I interviewed both Truss and Sunak is she was better one-to-one, but he was much more of a showman and was playing to the crowd a lot more. But you know, there was a lot to distinguish them, as has since been proven, right? She was unashamedly Thatcherite. She was coming out with things like, I'd frack in my own backyard. She was talking about lowering taxes. And he was very much giving the message that he's now giving in office, which is, no, there are tough times ahead. We've got to all wear a Hersher, and this is all fantasy economics. And we all know how fairy that tale. turned out. Fairy tale Fa- economics. Fairy tale. Brutal, Thank you, Gordo. Yeah. Thank you. And some of those uh, promises have come back to bite them, haven't they? Richard Sunak saying that uh, he wouldn't do onshore wind farms. Now he is doing and now he's prime minister yeah whoever, i mean whoever would have thought it <laughs> something's happened since then it's hard to go back to these points but it was i think for me if you look back over that august period it felt that that suddenly, suddenly liz trust felt that others were watching and understanding and listening to what was going on so when she became prime minister we we're all ready for whatever trustnomics was when in fact no one was really listening and most people were on holiday a few people paid to be there were there but otherwise it was an internal drama for the party wasn't it yeah, I think um, I think what what I found fascinating about the whole Liz Truss incident, shall we say, was that she was she was presenting some ideas that felt very popular, that certainly were popular with members, which is why she was elected. She was presenting ideas that a lot of people still think could have worked if she'd have gone mm-hmm. about it the right way, and it wasn't the it wasn't the idea that was that was terrible, it was the execution. And the execution, undeniably, was absolutely terrible. Well, you, you, you'll leave me ahead there, but we, we're now in September, as Gordon mm. says, and Liz Truss is elected as leader. Richard Sunak, 60,399. Liz Truss, 81,326. Therefore, I give notice that Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative Unionist Party. <laughs> At the time, uh, Camilla Tomney, it felt... You know, we were the Telegraph encouraged by Liz Truss, as Gordon says. Well, she was playing a good game of Telegraph reader bingo. I mean, she was speaking their language. And I think there's this degree of concern about kind of centralised conservative thinking. She's not a shy conservative. She nails her colours firmly to the mast. So all initially seemed quite promising. Yes, and she was keen on productivity and, and cutting taxes and getting the economy going and tackling the things which 
Jeremy Hunt later brought up, didn't he, when he became Chancellor, but she saw as a, she tried to find ways to deal with it from a right-wing perspective, Gordon. Growth. Growth, growth, Chris. Grow the growth pie. And more growth. <laughs> grow the pie. Absolutely. Growth, growth, growth. Which is something which, you know, we, we, we should be it's getting good. behind. We should still be getting behind that idea, mm. but nobody's really talking about that now. That's because they're in the anti-growth coalition well, that came in the next month, Chris. Now, look at these dates here. The September the 6th, uh, Liz Trust travelled to Balmoral to see the Queen, to be sworn, sworn as Prime Minister. On September the 8th, Queen Elizabeth II died. Yeah. And that tipped the world, the UK, on its axis and meant that politics stopped for quite a while. Camilla? I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about the fact that this leadership race had gone on for at least two weeks too long, six weeks, and it seemed strangely self So had it finished earlier? Well, had it finished earlier, she might have had a bit more time to kind of bed in. But of course, to see the Queen on the Tuesday and then for the Queen to pass away on the Thursday was most unexpected. And then that meant that Liz Truss had to retreat and the entire uh, nation and world was then focused on this extraordinary 12-day period of mourning. So, um, yeah, so the Queen died on the, on the 8th of September there, and there were then these, these days of mourning to the 19th when the, when the funeral happened, and, mm. it, and politics stopped happening, didn't it? And no one discussed politics, it was unseemly, and that meant there was little time really before the 23rd of September when Kwasi Kwarteng delivered an emergency mini-budget just four days after the, the funeral. Take the additional rate of income tax at 45%, it is currently higher than the headline top rate in G7 countries like the US and Italy. And it is even higher than social democracies like Norway. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr. Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd... I mean, Gordon Rayner, he announced an extraordinary number of tax cuts, didn't he, without any actual preparation amongst us, the journalists, no. even his own MPs. Well, we always use that awful phrase, pitch rolling, don't we? But it, it, it is quite a good description because when you have radical policies and particularly policies which are a bit of an about turn from what's gone before, people in politics know that you have to prepare the ground. Uh, you have to sort of test drive them. You have to make sure they're going to uh, be popular, that they're, mm. they're workable, that people are going to get behind it. You don't just spring surprises. You know, the, the, Theresa May, if we if we go back to, you know, the first prime minister of your podcast era you know famously brought in tried to bring in the dementia tax as as a complete surprise and it wasn't actually too bad a policy but because she hadn't prepared the ground for it it went down badly labor killed it off stone dead mm. and we've never seen it anything you know, that damaged her, damaged her completely it, saying nothing had changed exactly. it had changed so Quarteng, it was incredibly naive for mm. for Quarteng and trust to just think that they could spring all these surprises yeah and that there would be no consequence of that I mean, Camilla Tomlin axing the 45p top rate of tax. Well, everyone's looking at it going, OK, this is an interesting budget. This looks like it is going to grow the pie. But hang on, does she need to do that? That's quite extreme. Mm. All of this is quite More out there. I mean, look, we did we, we praised the budget at the time in the newspaper because mm. we felt it was something that was needed to encourage small and medium-sized businesses to actually prosper in this country and create wealth to employ people. The execution, as Gordon said earlier, though, I mean, was woeful. It was such a shame as well, because they were in such a rush, clearly in such a rush to kind of make a difference and put their stamp on the country. And they completely overshadowed what should have been the first half of their announcements, the energy package. They should 60 have, billion. 60 billion quid. I mean, the Conservatives never get thanked for giving anyone free money. Uh, <laughs> Rishi Sunak can testify to that, you know, banging on about furlough and everyone still hates him on the left. 
they get this extraordinary package to help energy bills, and yet it gets completely overshadowed by yet another budget omnishambles. And Kwasi Kwarteng, after that, on the Friday, went on TV, didn't he, on the Sunday, and said more tax cuts are coming without saying how you pay for the first one. Well, I, I mean, two things. One, it's Kwasi Kwarteng then started whinging about the fact nobody was talking about the um, energy uh, bailout. Well, that was their fault. But also, uh, the reason that we keep saying it with the execution, the reason the execution was so poor was because they decided not to have a, a proper budget, which meant they could do it without the Office of Budget Responsibility giving their view on whether it their was forecast. All, exactly whether it was going to be costed properly, whether it was whether it was going to work, and so the, the city had no confidence in it, and that was why we saw that sort of huge collapse in confidence in the economy. Yeah. Had they been a little bit less arrogant, shall we say, and, and had they uh, asked the OBR to do a forecast and done a proper budget, they might have still been there. Although there is an argument to suggest that OBR forecasts, Jacob Rees-Mogg made this argument in our paper, have never been right. And secondly, actually, now history rolls over all this and analyses it properly. There were a number of mistakes made by the Bank of England at the time as well. I know Liz Trust backer John Moynihan's written a quite extensive piece about where Andrew Bailey and co dropped the ball. But let's be honest about it, the market's got the jitters and the whole thing collapsed. And that's all that counts. But they should have been able to predict that. Quite. Kwarteng is meant to be a guy who understands money and understands the city, even though he's a historian. But Liz Truss is still there. So October the 5th, she gave a speech to the Tory party conference. We were all there. She talked about growth, 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 and decrying what she called an anti-growth coalition. I will not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP. It's always more taxes, more regulation and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That was not enough to stop Kwasi Kwarteng being dismissed as Chancellor of the Exchequer to be replaced by Jeremy Hunt. Gordon. Yeah, <laughs> fascinating moment. Um, <laughs> it did feel very much, didn't it, as though he'd been thrown under the bus because... He quasi. Uh, yeah, I mean, the idea that somehow this this uh, this mini-budget was all his doing and Liz Truss wasn't in any way to blame and how, how could he have got it so badly wrong? I mean, it didn't wash with anybody. You know, it was... It was Trussonomics. It wasn't mm. Quartangonomics. So that did feel as though that was the sort of last act of a, a, yeah. you know, a desperate uh, woman uh, before she, uh, you know, before she jumped herself. Yeah, Camilla. But surely the most politically suicidal moment for Liz Truss was the U-turn over the 45p. Because her whole shtick had been, I'm a radical, I'm Thatcherite, I am not for turning. And at the first opportunity, in the middle of her own conference, she turned. The danger there, of course, is assuming the mantle of someone you don't really... You have to earn that title, not not claim it as your own. Well, also, um, with respect, you have to have massive kahunas. <laughs> and, and not many have um, then, matched Thatcher in that department. Still in October, Gordon Ray, on October 17th, uh, the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, delivered an emergency statement to the Commons in which he announced the government will reverse almost all of the tax measures from the September the 23rd mini-budget. Yeah, just incredible. <laughs> I, I mean, we've never seen... We have literally never seen anything like it. We, we, we do bandy around words like unprecedented, but, you know, she, she did become... We haven't got there yet, but she did become the... Uh, shortest uh, serving Prime Minister in history, you know, spoiler alert. 
And so this was unprecedented. Yes. It, was, it was incredible. Well, that was a week of well, week of weeks. October the 17th was Jamie Hunt's U-turn. October the 19th, Swella Braveman resigned. Do you remember that? Oh, remember yes. the <laughs> That in the After mixer. sending an official document from a personal email to a fellow MP. That's right. And also, I think the background to that was this row over how to deal with the migrant crisis and a right. difference of opinion between Truss and Braverman. Because I think the idea had been that uh, Liz Truss had been looking at relaxing immigration rules to boost the economy. Gordon Rayner, do you remember who replaced Sola Braverman as Home Secretary? Yes. Uh, hold on a minute. Uh, no. Was it Nadeem Sahawi? It was Grant Shapps. Shapps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no Shapps. Good old Shapps. Shapps became there. Home Secretary. Everyone forgets that. You can tell um, we prepared for this. October you? the 20th, Liz Truss announced her pending resignation as Prime Minister. After 44 days in post, she eventually served 49 days, uh, a date uh, beaten by, by Rishi Sunak in mid-December. How will history remember Liz Truss? Camilla Tomini. Well, not necessarily kindly. I mean, the most awful thing from her personal perspective is because she was prime minister, albeit for a very short period, she has to turn up at all of the major events and be reminded of this extremely difficult period in her life, you know, be it remembrance or something happens with the king or some major royal occasion. Funnily enough, I saw her this week and my opening gambit was, how are you doing? (laughs) Because it's hard to know what to say. Yes, I, I saw quite this chirpy week. And, yeah, um, she was very chirpy to me, actually. Quite Liz Truss from days of old, actually. Really? A little ca- bit flirty? Maybe, but, <laughs> or, but carrying, carrying the weight of, of what is a mistake quite lightly. But she, I feel she thinks that she's going to be somewhat vindicated, probably with a catastrophic electoral defeat for Rishi Sunak, but let's wait and see. She was sort of talking to me about, you know, the institutions and you... You're basically trying to say you can't really get anything done now in this country. Do people realise that, that they can't mm. get anything done? You challenge the orthodoxy and you get eaten up in seconds. The so-called blob, is that fair, do you think? Do you think the blob got her, Gordon Rayner, or did her own incompetence get her? No, I think I think her own incompetence got her, but equally I do think that uh, we are seeing the blob taking back control, so it's, it's a bit of both. But she can't, she can't blame the blob, I mean, she made her own mistakes. October 24th, my birthday, Richie Sunak became the second person to be appointed Prime Minister and leader of the Tory party in 2022 and the third Prime Minister and leader since just seven weeks earlier in September after Penny Mordaunt dropped out of the leadership contest and Boris Johnson chose not to run. And then on the following day, October 25th, Liz Truss made a final speech outside 10 Downing Street. It has been a huge honour to be Prime Minister of this great country in particular to lead the nation in mourning the death of Her Late Majesty the Queen after 70 years of service and welcoming the accession of His Majesty I look forward to spending more time in my constituency and continuing to serve South West Norfolk from the backbenches. Our country continues to battle through a storm. But I believe in Britain. I believe in the British people. And I know that brighter days lie ahead. Thank you. In his first speech, Sunak paid tribute to his predecessors, but acknowledged that some mistakes were made. Well, that is that is stating the obvious, Gordon Rayner. Yes. Um, I mean, an awful lot of mistakes had been made. I, I think what was um, what, one of the fascinating things about that was that um, it, it almost felt as though... If he'd become Prime Minister straight after Boris Johnson, he may have been a bit more magnanimous, I think. But because there was the, the sort of, the, 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 you know, this sort of tear-up over trust, which is very damaging for him, 
I, I think he felt a lot less sort of, uh, you know, benevolent towards his predecessors and, and just decided to let rip. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister, in part, to fix them. And that work begins immediately. Well, he wasn't benevolent towards Boris Johnson, was he? I mean, we reported at the time that when they had tried to make a deal, Rishi had basically turned around to Boris and said, if you run against me, I will bring you down. Mm -hmm. But I think that's ironic now, in retrospect, reflecting on the last few weeks, because as he's found out to his horror, the Conservative Party appears to be rather ungovernable, regardless of who's at the helm. That's a problem now, isn't it, Gordon Ray? And I think there was a feeling that if you can get more than 35 or 40 Tory MPs on your side, you can just dictate to the government what happens next. Yeah, I mean, it's this incredible situation where they they had an 80-seat majority, which everybody thought was incredibly healthy, especially after mm. Theresa May lost. And it guaranteed victory in the next election. Guaranteed victory. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, um, you know, the idea was that nobody had ever overturned a majority that large in one go in, in it so that Labour couldn't possibly win mm. the next election um, because history was not on their side. Instead, what we found is that um, you only need a few dozen rebellious MPs to, to make that that sort of majority a nonsense effectively and I, I think what's happened to the Tory party is they've you know they clearly they've lost their hunger they've been in power for so long that they've they've now taken for granted and uh, they they think that they can all sort of you know have their own little factional way mm. and argue the toss over everything whereas Labour have become what they were not which is a very disciplined on-message party mm. sort of you know, desperate for power. We'll, we'll come to that later on because it's yeah. still a story story through November Briefly, Matt Hancock went into the jungle, but had starred on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Gavin Williamson resigned as Minister of State without portfolio. Over Gavin bullying. who? <laughs> <laughs> over Gavin Williamson, allegations of bullying. Jeremy Hunt gave his autumn statement, which calmed the markets. In the face of unprecedented global headwinds, families, pensioners, businesses, teachers, nurses and many others are worried about the future. So today, we deliver a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. Our priorities are stability, growth and public services. We also protect the vulnerable, because to be British is to be compassionate, and this is a compassionate and at the end of the month, we found out that net migration of the UK had hit an all-time high of 504,000 in the year to June. That is a normal month in politics, well, by normal Hardly. Standards. In normal circa these strange times that we're living in. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, many think, gave a grotesquely overcautious budget to a market that had already been calmed and um, is now having to sort of justify his conservatism in the face of accusations that he's once again raised the tax burden to the highest point wow. since the Second World War and that it's thoroughly un-Tory. They're now being seen as the non-Tory Tories and we've got this kind of strange situation where Starmer versus Sunak at the dispatch box appears to be somewhat of a bore-off. You know, there is only a fag paper between both of them and it's all looking 
rather uncolourful. Having said that, nostalgia for Boris Johnson characterises the year, doesn't it? Oh, you know, these Tories pining for Boris Johnson. But again, he remains Teflon-coated if he thinks he can absolve himself of any blame for this. The biggest emotion among proper grassroots Tory is absolute disappointment at the squandering of this astonishing oh, opportunity. Unbelievable. Gordon Rayner, you'd agree, wouldn't you? I mean, it has... They've just... Yeah. It's just pissed it away, frankly. Excuse my French. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing... Labour haven't done anything clever. The, the one thing that, that Keir Starmer has done right and done very successfully is he's, he's purged the party of the Corbynites. He has made the anti-Semitism uh, problem go away. He has made Labour a party that are not scary anymore. That I, th- I think that when we come to the next election, there won't be a sort of huge disincentive to vote Labour, uh, that, as there was under Corbyn. But apart from that, he hasn't really done anything. Are the reasons to vote Labour? What are the reasons to vote Labour? Well, he, well because they're not the Tories. Well, also, comparatively, to be fair, and this is the biggest problem for the Tories, they've managed to gain a reputation for fiscal competence. I mean, there is something funny about the Chancellor of the Year Award at the Spectator Awards going to Rachel Reeves. That's right. I mean, well, she is, she's reassured people that it's safe, might be safe to vote vote Labour. Let's look into next year, 2023. Big year, big year before the election, Camilla Tomney. What, what do you think will happen with the Tories? Will they recover their reason why they're in government? I mean, and- there's two years before the election now. Look, anything can happen in the next two years, admittedly. And I think at the moment they're just weathering the storm, a tough economic climate for the whole world, not just for the UK. Uh, We've just had this announcement from Sunak about trying to gain a grip on the migration crisis, particularly involving Albanians. You know, there's going to be a huge distraction in May because it's the coronation on May the 6th. And obviously that will have, once again, evokes scenes uh, akin to the Platinum Jubilee um, last year. It's a marathon and not a sprint. I would humbly suggest that they could do with no more people jumping ship and showing a lack of confidence in their ability to succeed in 2024. And, and Camilla's right there on May, because also 4th of May, two days before, is the local elections, when 7,000 seats are up for grabs, 4,000 Tory ones. If that goes badly for Rishi Sunak, it could be a difficult few months in, in the summer. Yes, it could. And I think one of the th- points that perhaps people don't, don't realise about uh, local elections is that it's not just about how many seats they do or don't gain on councils. It's about the effect that it has on activists. And if the activists feel that, well, if the activists start to give up, that makes it very difficult when it comes to a general election mm. because you don't have enough people to nope. go out there knocking on doors, mm. leafleting, all those things that you need to do just to get the vote out. And I think that could be the most damaging thing if it goes really badly for them in May. Do you have any forecasts for 2023, Camilla Tomlin? Is it the return of a certain blonde leader? I don't know about Some that. Are, we some just saying some stories made a million quid since he left well, that's the what, But that's what he said he would do. He's putting hay in the loft before he, yes. he comes um, back. I mean, I, I oh, crumbs. I, I, I've given up making predictions. I mean, journalistically, what we have covered since you started this podcast, you couldn't actually make up a Spielberg script no. of what's gone on. So I, 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 I literally am giving up. All I will say is, with regard to the local elections... And they may characterise the big election in 2024. Is it Labour's to win or just the Conservatives to lose? And at the moment, it's looking like the latter. It's not like loads of people are infused by Labour jumping out on the street on the doorstep saying, that, I want Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. They're not saying that. That's surely is a problem, Gordon Rayner, Gordon Rayner, because if the Tories become the competent party by this time next year, nothing goes wrong cost of living comes down, maybe the war in Ukraine finishes, pressure eases on, on energy prices, then the issue might be the risk of going with an untried 
party like Labour? Yeah, I think certainly the, the biggest mistake Labour could make is to be complacent, and I think Keir Starmer is intelligent enough to know that. I think that there are, you know, Donald Rumsfeld used to talk about unknown unknowns, didn't he? And um, as Camilla said, it's very hard to make predictions when you... Well, Ukraine was unknown this time last year, the yeah, U- exactly. Ukraine invasion. Um, so, that, that, look, that things could happen that we just haven't even thought about. And I think the idea that, that the Tories will definitely lose the next election, well, based on current evidence, they definitely will. But we don't have all the facts at our fingertips that we yeah. will have in 2024. So you can't completely write them off. They would have to be the first party ever to win a fifth successive um, term in office. Nobody's done it before. And they would have uh, to be the first ever to overturn a, a, a majority that big. Yeah, exactly. So, so something is going to happen which is going to be a first. But, uh, look, my only prediction would be uh, I'm fairly confident Rishi Sunak will still be prime minister this time next year, but... You know, are you I, confident? I wouldn't want to put my are you <laughs> confident that Andrew Bridget will not have put in a letter by the end? I'm definitely not. I think he already has. <laughs> What's your take, Camilla? Will Sunak be PM this time next year? Yes or no? I would thought so. I mean, the uh, Tory Party are sadomasochistic, but they would be literally killing themselves if they elect another leader in this period. But what is clear is... a joke. I mean, they couldn't anyway. Is, it would engender an earlier election, and that's the last thing they need. Nothing is decided, Gordon Rayner, is it? No, it could happen the, all over again. That is the joy of the job. Oh. If we knew what was going to happen, then we might as well just go home. Mm-hmm. On that note, Gordon Rayner and Camilla Tomini are associate editors, editors here at the Telegraph. Thank you for joining us for a review of the year This for this week's edition of Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, that's it. Goodbye 2022 and thank you to my guests this week, Camilla Tomney and Gordon Rayner. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. See you in 2023. Cheerio! Amazing. I can't believe the year we've had. Hmm? Make it stop. It's Everything. like, you know, when you, you, know when you think life goes very quickly once you get older, and then when you look back at stuff like stuff that happened in January, you think, actually, that was quite a long time ago. It was October mad.